Hello, friends. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to listen to the following Bible teaching message by Paul Scharf. Paul is a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, serving in the Midwest. You'll find all of his ministry resources at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, where he provides new content on a regular basis, including a weekly column that he writes, along with news and updates. Right now, we encourage you to follow along as we open God's Word for today's presentation. It's our prayer that the Lord God will use this teaching to bring glory to Himself and to work faith in each of our hearts. Here now with the sermon is Paul Scharf. We remember that in the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is confronting this church for which he had such great compassion He had such angst in his heart because of the divisions that they were suffering, especially at this time of the writing of the book of 2 Corinthians because of the false teachers, the Judaizers who had invaded the church, claiming to have credentials from the church in Jerusalem. They were quite different from the Judaizers that uh, troubled the church at Galatia. They came not with a message of legalism, but with a message that blended into the culture at Corinth, a message of licentiousness, a message, chapter 12, verse 21, of uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness. And it was so easy, so accommodating for the Corinthians to fall into the trap of these false teachers. And uh, they claimed to be, you may remember, Chapter 11, verse 5, super apostles, the most eminent apostles, as Paul speaks of also in chapter 12, verse 11. And they said of Paul, chapter 10, verse 10, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. What did Paul say in response? Well, let's back up this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians as we begin. Chapter 2, you can turn there or just listen as I read, to Paul's heart, his attitude, his mindset as he came to Corinth from the beginning, back when he had his 18-month ministry to establish the church there, and as he writes to them uh, going forward, this is his focus, this is his mindset. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What an attitude to come to minister in such a worldly, cosmopolitan city as Corinth. And what a model that is for us in our day as well. Turn over to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death 
For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Reminds me of a little story I heard that you, you may have heard this as well, of a man who wore a t-shirt that attracted some bit of attention. It had written on the front, I am a fool for Christ. And people wondered at that and laughed at this man who wore the t-shirt. But then as he walked away from them, it said on the back, Whose fool are you? We are fools for Christ's sake. This is Paul's mentality coming to the Corinthians. But you are wise in Christ, speaking sort of ironically there. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour we both hunger and thirst and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. Now in that light, Paul comes to the Corinthians and he says, you want to insult me? Go ahead. We're the off-scouring of the world. You win the argument. Now let's get serious. Let's talk about some biblical realities here of how God works in the world and what his purpose is in your life and mine revolving around the central act of all of history, that is the offering of Jesus Christ, of his own body on the cross, to be made sin for us, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 21, Christ for us. This is what Paul wants to teach the Corinthians, is at the center of all of our lives and ministry. It's Jesus Christ for us. You know, we're entering into a time of year that I really love and enjoy for a number of reasons and one of them is the end of next month October 31st I trust you all know it's not Halloween by the way it's Reformation Day I've had a lifelong passion for the Reformation it's it's history it's meaning it's significance if you'd have asked me when I was six years old what's October 31st I would have said Reformation Day and I was in a hotel actually last uh, weekend and in Kansas City area and uh, I noticed the TV channels a couple of them had horror movies coming up and it struck me and I thought oh it's that time of year and uh, I paraphrased a little saying that uh, you may have heard before we could talk about and I may have shared this before there's a there's sort of a a little joking little saying about the pre-trib rapture that's uh, very helpful sometimes in illustrating the concept there are no signs of the rapture. We say that uh, there are no signs of Thanksgiving, but there are many signs of Christmas. When you see all the signs of Christmas coming, you know Thanksgiving is near, right? When you see the signs of the second coming, you know the rapture is near. Well, the the thing that struck me that I sort of uh, developed off of that in my mind is 
when you see the horror movies playing on television, you know that Reformation Day is drawing near. <laughs> We're going to talk this morning, why am I talking about the Reformation? Because this is the central theme of all of the Reformation that, makes, that made it possible and that makes it relevant for our lives. Christ for us. You see, Martin Luther had a prayer that he prayed. He said, Lord Jesus, I am thy sin, and thou art my righteousness. Thou hast taken what is mine and hast given me what is thine. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became also man, came to this earth to die as our Savior on the cross, and he was not a sinner, he was not sinful, he did not become sinful. But God viewed him as bearing all the sin of the world, all of our sins were placed on him. And when God looked at Christ, all he could see on the cross is the sin of humanity. And your sin and mine on Jesus Christ, who paid for that sin. He offered the perfect sacrifice for sin. And when we believe on Jesus Christ alone, and trust in him by faith alone, we receive a gift by God's grace alone. And that is when God looks at us, having believed on Jesus Christ, that he died in our place and for our sin and was buried and rose again so that we could have eternal life in heaven with him, that we could be forgiven of our sin. When God looks at us, all he sees now is the righteousness of Christ. Not because... And Luther understood this not because God has made us righteous. We are not made righteous. Not because God's grace gives us the capability to perform acts that merit God's favor. For we are, could never merit God's favor by anything that we could do. But because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ placed in our account as a free gift of God totally undeserved, by his grace alone, without making any change in our life yet, by simply believing in Christ alone, when God looks at us, he sees only the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he has placed that righteousness in his record book next to our name by our account, and we stand in the righteousness of Christ before God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, let's back up and see how Paul gets to this point in the passage. And we're going to begin in verse 11, where we had, if you remember, the last time I was with you, we had dealt with issues earlier in the chapter, perhaps not completely through verse 10, which deals with the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, that where we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus, as believers, now this is a blessing for us. We won't be at the great white throne judgment. We won't be at any judgment where it's a determination, is this person saved or is this person lost? 
We certainly won't be at the great white throne where the only question is the degree of punishment for the lost only. No, we'll be at a special judgment as believers in Jesus Christ. We'll be at a special judgment, a unique place where no unbelievers are allowed. It's the judgment seat of Christ where our works in this life will be evaluated. The things we've done in the body, whether they've been good or bad, the word bad there is the idea of worthless. Have they been useful or useless? And you say, well, that doesn't sound so scary. Well, it's not scary because we're going to be with the Lord no matter what. It's a matter of the reward we receive, but it is serious. Because Paul says, knowing therefore, this motivated Paul, and it should motivate us, knowing therefore, because we're going to stand at this judgment seat, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We're going to, we're going to stand before the holy God, our creator and savior, and receive reward or loss of reward. This is serious business. This is the terror of the Lord as far as we're concerned. And it motivates us every day of our lives. But we're going to go on from there this morning and focus on the rest of the passage. Now, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. We persuade people. What, is, what does Paul mean by this? Well, this is our duty, our task as those that carry Paul's going to talk about verse 18, the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, he calls us ambassadors for Christ. Verse 4 of chapter 6, he calls us the ministers of God. Did you know that you have a new profession as of this morning, a new task, a new purpose in life? It's to be a diplomat, a dignitary, a statesman for a different country uh, our citizenship, Paul says in Philippians 3, is in heaven. And we being on this earth represent that foreign kingdom to all the people of the earth as the ministers of God. You say, I'm not a minister. Yes, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a minister. You're an ambassador. You, you have the ministry and the message of reconciliation to bring to the world. And your job is now to persuade people. That word persuade is used in several contexts in the book of Acts and Galatians. What does it mean to persuade? It's not manipulation. But it's the only legitimate offensive weapon that we have as ambassadors, as ministers. It's to present the best argument that we can possibly formulate on the basis of the truth of God rightly divided and correctly applied and then with all the winsomeness with all the energy that we have to take that message and share it with others and offer it to others that's all we have that's the only weapon in our arsenal is persuasion and it's, an, and it's a task given to each one of us to persuade others. This is in light of the coming judgment seat of Christ. We are to persuade people. Now, who is Paul persuading in this chapter? Well, specifically, he's trying to persuade the Corinthians, first of all, not of the gospel message. They have already received the gospel. But 
of the fact that they need to remain true and faithful to the apostolic teaching and ministry that he has shared with them, not to be divided, that not that the church be destroyed by these false teachers, these Judaizers who have come to their midst. Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. If you've been with us in previous messages that I brought from 2 Corinthians, you may remember that Paul deals with the conscience in chapter 1, verse 12, and chapter 4, verse 2. He's appealing to them at their consciences that they and their consciences will receive the self-authenticating word of God and be persuaded to correct the errors and the divisions in the church congregation. Now Paul goes on from there in verse 12. He says, we do not commend ourselves again to you. We're not here to talk about ourselves, promote ourselves, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf. In other words, I think what Paul is saying, we want you to focus on what God has done. It's not what we say about ourselves, but we want you to rejoice in what God has done for us and for you and for us in your midst and have an answer for those who boast in appearance, who do speak highly of themselves, who share their press releases, these false teachers who come to you with their credentials and demanding that Paul share his credentials when in fact the Corinthians themselves were Paul's credentials. They were the result of his ministry. They were the letters that God had written on their hearts by his spirit living letters of Paul's apostolic authority. He says, for verse 13 again, for if we are beside ourselves, the false teachers may have charged that Paul is unreliable. He's not competent. He's, he's incoherent. Remember chapter 1, they said he says yes, and then he says no, and he, he answers with fleshly wisdom or even making sinful choices. Paul says, well, so be it. If we are beside ourselves, if we're fools, we're fools for Christ. It's for God that we're beside ourselves. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Now Paul is motivated by the judgment seat of Christ, and here he's going to give us another area of motivation. That is found in the death of Christ where he is heading at the very apex of the chapter, which we've already discussed in verse 21. The love of Christ compels us. That word compel is a very startling word in the original text. Someone said it's like the love of Christ has tackled me. It's come up from behind and caught me. And it compels me now. It constrains me. It motivates me because we judge thus. The love of Christ, by the way, is that our love for Christ or Christ's love for us? Well, 1 John 4.19 says we love him because he first loved us, right? So in either case, it begins with Christ's love for us. But notice we enter into here, it's interesting, by the way, in this book, which is really the most practical, the most heartfelt of all of Paul's epistles, chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Chapter 7, verse 2, open your hearts to us. 
this is the most heartfelt, the most empathetic, the most personal of any of Paul's letters, and yet it contains very important deep doctrinal teaching, especially in this section that we're entering into here, uh, beginning in verse 14. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. Now follow the logic here and follow what Paul is saying. He says, if one died for all, then all died. And then he says again, and he died for all, that those who live. Now if you're theologically astute, you're probably picking up right here that the issue in the text here that is a doctrinal issue among Christians is for whom did Christ die? Did he die for all men, all women, all children, all people of all time bear the sins of the whole world? Or did he die only for believers? Did he die only for the elect? Limited atonement or particular atonement it's called. Paul says, well, the, the, the major idea seems to say he died for all. He died for all is listed twice in verses 14 and 15. But really the challenge to that, which is used by those who teach limited atonement, is at the end of verse 14, if he died for all, then all died. We wouldn't think of unbelievers dying in Christ. They're not in Christ. If he died for all, then all died. So the, if, he, if his death caused the death of all, in some sense, those must be believers. You see the logic there? But there's another alternative. I think that the wording at the end of verse 14 talks not of the death of all in Christ, but of the death of all in, can you think of someone else that we died in? Adam. Dying you will die, Genesis 2.17. In the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. And because of the sin of Adam, all have died spiritually and all will die physically. And apart from the sacrifice of Christ, all will die eternally. So I believe that verse 14 is saying that Christ died for all because all were dead in Adam and needed a Savior. And then when we come to verse 15, you see, he died for all. So again, we don't believe in limited atonement. We believe that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. And he died for all. Now notice there's a subgroup, a subset, a smaller group, that those who live. He died for all that those who live. There are only some of those for whom he died who believe the gospel and who live. He died for all that those who live. This smaller group is those of believers who because of the gift they've received through Christ should now be motivated to live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. We're motivated by the coming judgment seat of Christ. We're motivated by the death of Christ and the gift that he's given to us. 
What are we motivated to do? Well, I've told you, you've got a new job as of this morning. You're an ambassador. You're a minister. You have a message to proclaim. You have a job to do to persuade people legitimately of the message, the apostolic teaching of the Apostle Paul beginning in this chapter. Beginning right here among your own congregation as Paul was in the Corinthians to compel you forward in your ministry. And what are we motivated to do? We are motivated to have an entirely new outlook and perspective then on life. We are to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. And therefore, Paul says, this is our motivation. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. What is Paul talking about? This is probably a reference again to the Judaizers, the false teachers. They proclaimed themselves super apostles, remember. And they judged according to appearance. They boasted in their outward abilities and they judged according to the flesh. Paul says we don't do that. We've even in the past, there was a time, Paul says, I thought of Christ himself only in terms of his fleshly appearance. But now we don't know or think of him that way. In fact, we don't judge anyone that way. We want to be like God who looks not on the outward appearance but on the heart. We want to be like him in that way. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, I've shared with you before, in Christ, I believe that's a technical term in the New Testament epistles. It means to be in Christ, to be placed in the body of Christ. Who places us in the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. At the time when we believe, as a benefit of believing the gospel, as a blessing for us, God, by his Holy Spirit, places us in Christ, into the body of Christ, which is his church. Not not the local church specifically, but the, the invisible, universal body, the true body of all believers the body of Christ. We're in Christ. And if anyone is in Christ, what else does the Holy Spirit do for us? He makes us a new creation. He regenerates us. He gives us a new nature. He's, we're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, you have all this down. You're getting your job description. You're getting ready to go out and persuade people. Because Paul's going to tell you how to do it. Because he says, now all things are of God. Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has reconciled us to himself and given us, think of that, the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what does this mean? Well, Paul explains, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now that seems to fit again with the idea Christ died for the whole world, doesn't it? He's reconciling the whole world to himself. Now wait a minute. 
Does that mean the whole world is saved? Well, hang on to that question for a second. God was in Christ reconciling. By the way, to reconcile means to bring back in relationship, to, make, to bring back into a favorable a place. God is turning the world around and through the death of Christ, bringing it back into a relationship with him in some sense. And he, in fact, he's not even imputing their trespasses to them. That's what happened. The death of Christ is so overwhelmingly powerful that through Christ, God reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Well, does that mean, again, now, does that mean to ask the question, is the whole world saved? Is everyone saved because of the death of Christ? Without even believing the gospel, the whole world is now saved and their, their sins won't ever be counted against them? And, and therefore our message is just to go out and say, you are reconciled to God. What a wonderful message. Welcome to the family. God has reconciled you to himself. He's saying, this so that would sound strange. No, it is strange. That's not what our message is. That's not what happened at the cross. You see, because the sins of all people were not forgiven specifically, individually, personally, because Christ died for them. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.24, some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment. There will be people who will be lost eternally. They will stand at the great white throne judgment, which I mentioned earlier. Their names won't have been written in the book of life, and they will stand before God, chapter 21, verse 8 of Revelation, as the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they'll have their part in the lake of fire. So in what sense did Christ reconcile the whole world to God and is not imputing their sins to them, against them? Ah, notice at the end of verse 19, he's committed to us the word, the message of reconciliation, and now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf. Oh, here's the key. Be reconciled to God. That's our message. You see, Christ's death is sufficient for all, but it's efficient for those who believe. He died for all, but only some will live. He's reconciled the world to himself and that reconciliation applies to those who receive the message, be reconciled to God. And at that point, their sins are officially forgiven and will never be imputed against them. He won't impute their trespasses. He won't look at his record of the believer and see a record of their trespasses. Why? Because that was placed on Jesus Christ and forever blotted out. And the righteousness of Christ is placed in the record next to the name of the believer. We are ambassadors for Christ. And God is pleading through us. And our message that we carry is first and foremost, with persuasion we say, be reconciled to God. Receive the gift have you received the gift? I know that you know all about it. 
we've recited this morning. You've claimed to know Jesus Christ by your testimony, reciting the Apostles' Creed. Have you really received that gift personally? In your own heart, in your own mind, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. That's the key. That's what makes the eternal difference. Believing that Christ is for us. You see, there were the, at the time of the Reformation, and still today, those who teach that God must work in us and give us the grace to perform works that merit his favor. But what became known as the material principle of the Reformation, faith alone. This was the great discovery of Martin Luther and the Reformers, that it's by faith alone that God places the righteousness of Christ in the account of one who believes on Christ alone, by faith alone, and we're saved by his grace alone, because he has paid the price that we could never pay. He alone has a righteousness that allows us to stand before a holy God who knows no sin and be declared righteous. It's on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. He made him, God made him. By the way, do you see how in this passage Christ is active, the Holy Spirit is active, God the Father is active, all working for the believer, gives us another reinforcement of how we can have a new perspective on life and the world. Uh, from now on, we, we view things only through the lens of God's view of the world. We regard no one according to the flesh, but we have God's understanding of all things. All things are of God. And God was in Christ and made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I hope that message is, is clear in your mind today. If I've in any way confused anything by something that I've said, please seek me before you go, and I'd love to chat with you about that. And the next time you see those horror movies coming across your screen. Just know that means Reformation Day is drawing near. Christ for us. God in Christ reconciling the world to himself and now giving us who have received that gift a message to share, to go out and attempt to persuade everyone that we meet as ambassadors for Christ. Father, I thank you for this amazing text of scripture. We could never exhaust it, no matter how much time we gave to it. But I pray that you will use it this morning to work faith in our hearts, for we know that faith comes only by the word of God. And use it through our lives to bring glory to yourself as we go out and seek to fulfill our role as the ambassadors for Christ and ministers of God that you've created us to be. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name.